be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined us tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading Emily Klein's Chapter 23, An Open Door, and Chapter 24, A Valley of Vision. In the last chapter, after their interview, Emily discovered that the very rude dog running around was not Miss Royals at all. In these chapters, Emily is offered the chance of a lifetime. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy. And your breath soften. As we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 23 An Open Door Miss Royal looked at Emily for a moment. Then she seized her wrist, shut the door, drew her back to the parlour and firmly pushed her down into the Morris chair. This done, Miss Royal threw herself down onto the muddy Davenport and began to laugh, long and helplessly. Once or twice, she rocked herself forward, gave Emily's knee two wild whacks, then rocked back and continued to laugh. Emily sat, smiling faintly. Her feelings had been too deeply harrowed to permit of Miss Royal's convulsions of mirth. But already there was a glimmering in her mind, a sketch for her Jimmy book. Meanwhile, the white dog, having chewed the tidy to tatters, spied the cat again and again rushed after her. Finally, Miss Royal sat erect and wiped her eyes. Oh, this is priceless, Emily Birdstar. Priceless. When I'm eighty, I'll recall this and howl over it. Who will write it up? You or I. But who does own that brute? I'm sure I don't know, said Emily demurely. I never saw him in my life before. Well, let's shut the door 
before he can return. And now, dear thing, sit here beside me. There's one clean spot here under the cushion. We're going to have our real talk now. Oh, I was so beastly to you when you were trying to ask me questions. I was trying to be beastly. Why didn't you throw something at me, you poor insulted darling? I wanted to, but now I think you let me off very easily, considering the behaviour of my supposed dog. Miss Royal went off in another convulsion. I don't know if I can forgive you for thinking that horrid curly white creature was my glorious red gold chow. I'll take you up to my room before you go, and you shall apologise to him. He's asleep on my bed. I locked him there to relieve dear Aunt Angela's mind about her cat. Chew Chin wouldn't hurt the cat. He merely wants to play with her, and the foolish old thing runs. Now, you know, when a cat runs, a dog simply can't help chasing her. As Kipling tells us, he wouldn't be a proper dog if he didn't. If only that white fiend had confined himself to chasing the cat. It is too bad about Mrs. Royal's begonia, said Emily, regretfully. Yes, that is a pity. Aunt Angela's had it for years. But I'll get her a new one. When I saw you coming up the walk with that dog frisking around you, of course I concluded he was yours. I had put on my favourite dress because it really makes me look almost beautiful, and I wanted you to love me. And when the beast muddied it all over, and you never said a word of rebuke or apology, I simply went into one of my cold rages. I do go into them. I can't help them. It's one of my faults. But I soon thaw out if no fresh aggravation occurs. In this case, fresh aggravation occurred every minute. I vowed to myself that if you did not even try to make your dog behave, I would not suggest that you should. And I suppose you were indignant because I calmly let my dog spoil your violets and eat your manuscript. I was. It's too bad about the manuscripts. Perhaps we can find them. Can't really have swallowed them but I suppose he has chewed them to bits. It doesn't matter. I have other copies at home. And your questions. Emily, you were too delicious. Did you really write down my answers? Word for word. I meant to print them just so, too. Mr. Towers had given me a list of questions for you. But of course, I didn't mean to fire them off point-blank like that. 
I meant to weave them in artfully into our conversation as we went along. But here comes Mrs. Royal. Mrs. Royal came in, smiling. Her face changed as she saw the begonia. But Miss Royal interposed quickly. Dearest auntie, don't weep or faint. At least not before you've told me who around here owns a white, curly, utterly mannerless, devilish dog. Lily Bates, said Mrs. Royal in a tone of despair. Oh, has she let that creature out again? I had a most terrible time with him before you came. He's really just a big puppy and he can't behave. I told her finally if I caught him over here again, I'd poison him. She's kept him shut up since then. But now, oh, my lovely Rex. Well, this dog came in with Emily. I supposed he was her dog. Courtesy to a guest implies courtesy to her dog. Isn't there an old proverb that expresses it more concisely? He embraced me fervently upon his entrance, as my dearest dress testifies. He marked up your Davenport. He tore off Emily's violets. He chased your cat. He overturned your begonia. He broke your vase. He ran off with our chicken. Ah, groan, Aunt Angela. He did. And yet I, determinedly composed and courteous, said not a word of protest. I vow my behaviour was worthy of New Moon itself, wasn't it, Emily? You were just too mad to speak, said Mrs. Royal, ruefully, fingering her wretched begonia. Miss Royal stole a sly glance at Emily. You see, I can't put anything over on Aunt Angela. She knows me too well. I admit I was not my usual charming self. But Auntie Darling, I'll get you a new vase and a new begonia. Think of all the fun you'll have coaxing it along. Anticipation is always so much more interesting than realisation. I'll settle it with Lily Bates said Mrs. Royal, going out of the room to look for a dustpan. Now, dear thing, let's gab, said Miss Royal, snuggling down beside Emily. This was the Miss Royal of the letter. Emily found no difficulty in talking to her. They had a jolly hour, and at the end of it, Miss Royal made a proposition that took away Emily's breath. Emily, I want you to come back to New York with me in July. There's a vacancy on the staff of the lady's own. 
no great thing in itself. You'll be a sort of general handyman, and all the odd jobs will be turned over to you. But you'll have a chance to work up, and you'll be in the centre of things. You can write. I realised that the moment I read The Woman Who Spanked the King. I know the editor of the Roche, and I found out who you were and where you lived. That's really why I came down this spring. I wanted to get hold of you. You mustn't waste your life here. It would be a crime. Oh, of course. I know New Moon is a dear, quaint, lovely spot. Full of poetry and steeped in romance. It was just the place for you to spend your childhood in. But you must have a chance to grow and develop and be yourself. You must have the stimulus of association with great minds. The training that only a great city can give. Come with me. If you do, I promise you that in ten years' time, Emily Birdstar will be a name to conjure with among the magazines of America. Emily sat in a maze of bewilderment, too confused and dazzled to think clearly. She had never dreamed of this. It was as if Miss Royal had suddenly put into her hand a key to unlock the door into the world of her dreams and hopes and imaginings. Beyond that door was all she had ever hoped for of success and fame. And yet, and yet, what faint, odd resentment stirred at the back of all her whirling sensations. Was there a sting in Miss Royal's calm assumption that if Emily did not go with her, her name would forever remain unknown? Did the old, dead-and-gone Murrays turn over in their graves at the whisper that one of their descendants could never succeed without the help and pull of a stranger? Or had Miss Royal's manner been a shade too patronising? Whatever it was, it kept Emily from figuratively flinging herself at Miss Royal's feet. Oh, Miss Royal, that would be wonderful, she faltered. I'd love to go, but I'm afraid Aunt Elizabeth will never consent. She'll say I'm too young. How old are you? Seventeen. I was eighteen when I went. I didn't know a soul in New York. I had just enough money to keep me for three months. I was a crude, callow little thing. Yet I won out. You shall live with me. I'll look after you as well as Aunt Elizabeth herself could do. Tell her I'll guard you like the apple of my eye. I have a dear, cosy little flat where we'll be as happy as queens. 
with my adored and adorable Chuchin. You'll love Chuchin, Emily. I think I'd like a cat better, said Emily, firmly. Cat? Oh, we couldn't have a cat in my flat. It wouldn't be amenable enough to discipline. You must sacrifice your pussies on the altar of your art. I'm sure you'll like living with me. I'm very kind and amenable, dearest, when I feel like it. And I generally do feel like it. And I never lose my temper. It freezes up occasionally, but, as I told you, I thaw quickly. I bear other people's misfortunes with equanimity, and I never tell anyone she has a cold or that she looks tired. Oh, I really make an adorable housemate. I'm sure you would, said Emily, smiling. I never saw a young girl before that I wanted to live with, said Miss Royal. You have a sort of luminous personality, Emily. You'll give off light in dull places and in purple drab spots. Now, do make up your mind to come with me. It is Aunt Elizabeth's mind that must be made up, said Emily, ruefully. If she says I can go, I'll... Emily found herself stopping suddenly. Go, finished Miss Royal, joyfully. Aunt Elizabeth will come around. I'll go and have a talk with her. I'll go out to New Moon with you next Friday night. You must have your chance. I can't thank you enough, Miss Royal, so I won't try. But I must go now. I'll think this all over. I'm too dazzled just now to think at all. You don't know what this means to me. I think I do, said Miss Royal, gently. I was once a young girl in Shrewsbury, eating my heart out because I had no chance. But you made your own chance, and won it, said Emily, wistfully. Yes, but I had to go away to do it. I could never have got anywhere here, and it was a horribly hard climb at first. It took my youth. I want to save you some of your hardships and discouragements. You will go far beyond what I have done. You can create. I can only build with the materials others have made. But we builders have our place. We can make temples for our gods and goddesses, if nothing else. Come with me, dear girl Emily, and I will do all I can to help you in every way.
Thank you. Thank you, was all Emily could say. Tears of gratitude for this offer of ungrudging help and sympathy were in her eyes. She had not received too much of sympathy or encouragement in her life. It touched her deeply. She went away feeling that she must turn the key and open the magic door beyond, which now seemed to lie all the beauty and allurement of life. If only Aunt Elizabeth would let her. I can't do it if she doesn't approve, decided Emily. Halfway home, she suddenly stopped and laughed. After all, Miss Royal had forgotten to show her chew chin. But it doesn't matter, she thought, because, in the first place, I can't believe that, after this, I'll ever feel any real interest in chow dogs. And in the second place, I'll see him often enough if I go to New York with Miss Royal. Chapter 23 A Valley of Vision Would she go to New York with Miss Royal? That was the question Emily had now to answer. Or rather, the question Aunt Elizabeth must answer. For on Elizabeth's answer, as Emily felt, everything depended. And she had no real hope that Aunt Elizabeth would let her go. Emily might look longingly towards those pleasant, far-off, green pastures pictured by Miss Royal, but she was quite sure she could never browse in them. The Murray pride and prejudice would be an impassable barrier. Emily said nothing to Aunt Ruth about Miss Royal's offer. It was Aunt Elizabeth's due to hear it first. She kept her dazzling secret until the next weekend, when Miss Royal came to New Moon, very gracious and pleasant, and the weest bit patronising to ask Aunt Elizabeth to let Emily go with her. Aunt Elizabeth listened in silence, a disapproving silence, as Emily felt. The Murray women have never had to work out for their living, she said coldly. It isn't exactly what you would call working out, dear Miss Murray, said Miss Royal, with the courteous patience one must use to a lady whose viewpoint was that of an outlived generation. Thousands of women are going into business and professional life everywhere. I suppose it's all right for them if they don't get married, said Aunt Elizabeth. Miss Royal flushed slightly. 
She knew that in Blairwater and Shrewsbury, she was regarded as an old maid, and therefore a failure, no matter what her income and her standing might be in New York. But she kept her temper and tried another line of attack. Emily has an unusual gift for writing, she said. I think she can do something really worthwhile if she gets a chance. She ought to have a chance, Miss Murray. You know there isn't any chance for that kind of work here. Emily has made $90 this past year with her pen, said Aunt Elizabeth. Heaven grant me patience, thought Miss Royal, said Miss Royal. Yes, and ten years from now, she may be making a few hundreds. Whereas, if she comes with me, in ten years' time, her income would probably be as many as thousands. I'll have to think it over, said Aunt Elizabeth. Emily felt surprised that Aunt Elizabeth had even consented to think it over. She had expected absolute refusal. She'll come around to it, whispered Miss Royal when she went away. I'm going to get you, darling Emily B. I know the Murrays of old. They always had an eye to the main chance. Auntie will let you come. I'm afraid not, said Emily ruefully. When Miss Royal had gone, Aunt Elizabeth looked at Emily. Would you like to go, Emily? Yes, I think so, if you don't mind, faltered Emily. She was very pale. She did not plead or coax, but she had no hope, none. Aunt Elizabeth took a week to think it over. She called in Ruth and Wallace and Oliver to help her. Ruth said dubiously, I suppose we ought to let her go. It's a splendid chance for her. It's not as if she were going alone. I'd never agree to that. Janet will look after her. She's too young. She's too young, said Uncle Oliver. It seems a good chance for her. Janet Royal has done well, they say, said Uncle Wallace. Aunt Elizabeth even wrote to great-aunt Nancy. The answer came back in Aunt Nancy's quavering hand. Suppose you let Emily decide for herself, suggested Aunt Nancy. Aunt Elizabeth folded up Aunt Nancy's letter and called Emily into the parlour. If you wish to go with Miss Royal, you may, she said. 
I feel it would not be right for me to hinder you. We shall miss you. We would rather have you with us for a few years yet. I know nothing about New York. I'm told it is a wicked city. But you have been brought up carefully. I leave the decision in your hands. Laura, what are you crying about? Emily felt as if she wanted to cry herself. To her amazement, she felt something that was not delight or pleasure. It was one thing to long after forbidden pastures. It seemed to be quite another thing when the bars were flung down and you were told to enter if you would. Emily did not immediately rush to her room and write a joyous letter to Miss Royal, who was visiting friends in Charlottetown. Instead, she went out into the garden and thought very hard. All that afternoon and all Sunday. During the weekend in Shrewsbury, she was quiet and thoughtful, conscious that Aunt Ruth was watching her closely. For some reason, Aunt Ruth did not discuss the matter with her. Or perhaps it was an understood thing among the Murrays that Emily's decision was to be entirely uninfluenced. Emily couldn't understand why she didn't write Miss Royal at once. Of course, she would go. Wouldn't it be terribly foolish not to? She would never have such a chance again. It was such a splendid chance. Everything made easy. The alpine path, no more than a smooth and gentle slope. Success, certain and brilliant and quick. Why then did she have to keep telling herself all this? Why was she driven to seek Mr. Carpenter's advice the next weekend? And Mr. Carpenter would not help her very much. He was rheumatic and cranky. Don't tell me the cats have been hunting again, he groaned. No, I haven't any manuscripts this time, said Emily, with a faint smile. I've come for advice of a different kind. She told him of her perplexity. It's such a splendid chance, she concluded. Of course it's a splendid chance to go and be a Yankified, grunted Mr. Carpenter. I wouldn't get Yankified, said Emily resentfully. Miss Royal has been twenty years in New York, and she isn't Yankified. Isn't she? I don't mean by Yankified what you think I do, retorted Mr. Carpenter. I'm not referring to the silly girls who go up to the States 
to work and come back in six months with an accent that would raise blisters on your skin. Janet Royal is Yankified. Her outlook and atmosphere and style are all U.S. And I'm not condemning them. They're all right. But she isn't a Canadian any longer. And that's what I wanted you to be. Pure Canadian through and through. Doing something as far as in you lay for the literature of your country. Keeping your Canadian tang and flavour. But of course, there's not many dollars in that sort of thing yet. There's no chance to do anything here, argued Emily. No, no more than there was in Hayworth Personage, growled Mr. Carpenter. I'm not a Charlotte Bronte, protested Emily. She had genius. It can stand alone. I have only talent. It needs help. And... and guidance. In short, pull said Mr. Carpenter. So you think I oughtn't to go, said Emily, anxiously. Go if you want to. To be quickly famous, we must all stoop a little. Oh, go, go, I'm telling you. I'm too old to argue. Go in peace. You'd be a fool not to. Only, fools do sometimes attain. There's a special providence for them, no doubt. Emily went away from the little house in the hollow, with her eyes rather black. She met old Kelly on her way up the hill, and he pulled his plump nag and red chariot to a standstill, and beckoned to her. Girl, dear, here's some peppermints for you. And now, ain't it high time, eh? Now, you know. Old Kelly winked at her. Oh, I'm going to be an old maid, Mr. Kelly, smiled Emily. Old Kelly shook his head as he gathered up his reins. Sure nothing like that will ever be happening to you. You're one of the folks God really loves. Only don't be taking one of the priests now. Never one of the priests, girl dear. Mr. Kelly, said Emily, suddenly. I've been offered a splendid chance to go to New York and take a place on the staff of a magazine. I can't make up my mind. What do you think I'd better do? As she spoke, she thought of the horror of Aunt Elizabeth at the idea of a Murray asking old Jack Kelly's advice. She herself was a little ashamed of doing it. 
Old Kenny shook his head again. What do the boys around here be thinking of? What does the old lady say? Aunt Elizabeth says I can do as I like. Then I guess we'll have it at that, said old Kelly, and drove off without another word. Plainly, there was no help to be had in old Kelly. Why should I want help, thought Emily, desperately. What has gotten into me that I can't make up my own mind? Why can't I say I'll go? It doesn't seem to me now that I want to go. I only feel I ought to want to go. She wished that Dean were home. But Dean had not got back from his winter in Los Angeles. And somehow she could not talk the matter over with Teddy. Nothing had come of that wonderful moment in the old John house. Nothing except a certain constraint that had almost spoiled their old comradeship. Outwardly, they were as good friends as ever, but something was gone, and nothing seemed to be taking its place. She would not admit to herself that she was afraid to ask Teddy. Suppose he told her to go? That would hurt her unbearably, because it would show that he didn't care whether she went or stayed. But Emily would not glance at this at all. Of course I'll go, she said aloud to herself. Perhaps the spoken word would settle things. What would I do next year if I didn't? Aunt Elizabeth will certainly never let me go anywhere else alone. Ilsa will be away, and Perry. Teddy too, likely. He says he's bound to go and do something to earn money for his art study. I must go. She said it fiercely, as if arguing against some invisible opponent. When she reached home in the twilight, no one was there, and she went restlessly all over the house. What charm and dignity and fineness the old rooms had, with their candles and their ladder-backed chairs and their braided rugs. How dear and entreating was her own little room, with its diamond paper and its guardian angel, its fat black rose jar and its funny kinky window pane. Would Miss Royal's flat be half so wonderful? Of course I'll go, she said again, feeling that if she could only have left off the, of course, the thing would have been settled. She went out into the garden, lying in the remote, passionless beauty of early spring moonlight 
and walked up and down its path. From afar came the whistle of the Shrewsbury train, like a call from the alluring world beyond. A world full of interest, charm, drama. She paused by the old lichen sundial and traced the motto on its border. So goes time by. Time did go by, swiftly, mercilessly, even at new moon, unspoiled as it was by any haste or rush of modernity. Should she not take the current when it offered? The white June lilies waved in the faint breeze. She could almost see her old friend, the wind woman, bending over them to tilt their waxen chins. Would the wind woman come to her in the crowded city streets? Could she be like the Kipling's cat there? And I wonder if I'll ever have the flash in New York, she thought wistfully. How beautiful was this old garden, which Cousin Jimmy loved. How beautiful was old New Moon Farm. Its beauty had a subtly romantic quality all its own. There was enchantment in the curve of the dark red, dew-wet road beyond. Remote, spiritual allurement in the three princesses. Magic in the orchard. A hint of intriguing devilment in the firwood. How could she leave this old house that had sheltered and loved her? Never tell me houses do not love. The graves of her kin by the Blairwater Pond. The wide fields and haunted woods where her childhood dreams had been dreamed. All at once, she knew she could not leave them. She knew she had never really wanted to leave them. That was why she had gone about desperately asking advice of impossible outsiders. She had really hoped they would tell her not to go. That was why she had wished so wildly that Dean were home. He would certainly have told her not to go. I belong to New Moon. I stay among my own people, she said. There was no doubt about this decision. She did not want anyone to help her to it. A deep, inner contentment possessed her as she went up the walk into the old house which no longer looked reproachfully at her. She found Elizabeth and Laura and Cousin Jimmy in the kitchen, full of its candle magic. I'm not going to New York, Aunt Elizabeth, she said. I'm going to stay here 
at New Moon with you. Aunt Laura gave a little cry of joy. Cousin Jimmy said, hurrah. Aunt Elizabeth knitted a round of her stocking before she said anything. Then, I thought a Murray would, she said. Emily went straight to Ashburn Monday evening. Miss Royal had returned and greeted her warmly. I hope you've come to tell me that Miss Murray has decided to be reasonable and let you come with me, honey sweet. She told me I could decide for myself. Miss Royal clapped her hands. Oh, goody, goody, then it's all settled. Emily went pale, but her eyes were black with earnestness and intense feeling. Yes, it's settled. I'm not going, she said. I thank you with all my heart, Miss Royal, but I can't go. Miss Royal stared at her, realised in a moment that it was not the slicest use to plead or argue, but began to plead and argue all the same. Emily, you can't mean it. Why can't you come? I can't leave New Moon. I love it too much. It means too much to me. I thought you wanted to come with me, Emily, said Miss Royal, reproachfully. I did, and part of me wants to yet. But away down under that, another part of me will not go. Don't think me foolish and ungrateful, Miss Royal. Of course I don't think you're ungrateful, said Miss Royal, helplessly. But I do, yes, I do think you are awfully foolish. You are simply throwing away your chances of a career. What can you ever do here that is worthwhile, child? You've no idea of the difficulties in your path. You can't get material here. There's no atmosphere. No. I'll create my own atmosphere, said Emily, with a trifle of spirit. After all, she thought, Miss Royal's viewpoint was just the same as Mrs. Alex Sawyer's, and her manner was patronising. And as for material, People live here just the same as anywhere else. Suffer and enjoy and sin and aspire, just as they do in New York. You don't know a thing about it, said Miss Royal, rather pettishly. You'll never be able to write anything really worthwhile here. No big thing. There's no inspiration. 
you'll be hampered in every way. The big editors won't look farther than the address of P.E. Island on your manuscript. Emily, you're committing literary suicide. You'll realise that at three of the clock some white night. Emily B. Oh, I suppose after some years you'll work up a clientele of Sunday school and agricultural papers. But will that satisfy you? You know it won't. And then the petty jealousy of these small prunes and prisms places. If you do anything the people you went to school with can't do, some of them will never forgive you, and they'll all think you're the heroine of your own story, especially if you portray her beautiful and charming. If you write a love story, they'll be sure it's your own. You'll get so tired of Blair Water. You'll know all the people in it. What they are and can be. It'll be like reading a book for the twentieth time. Oh, I know all about it. I was alive before you were born, as I said when I was eight, to a playmate of six. You'll get discouraged and the hour of three o'clock will be gradually overwhelming you. There's a three o'clock every night, remember. You'll give up. You'll marry that cousin of yours. Never. Well, someone like him then, and settle down. No, I'll never settle down, said Emily decidedly. Never as long as I live. What a stodgy condition. And you'll have a parlour like this, of Aunt Angela's, continued Miss Royal relentlessly. A mantelpiece crowded with photographs. An easel with an enlarged picture in a frame eight inches wide. A red plush album with a crocheted doily on it. A crazy quilt on your spare room bed. A hand-painted banner in your hall. And, as a final touch of elegance, an asparagus fern will grace the centre of your dining room table. No, said Emily gravely. Such things are not among the Murray traditions. Well, the spiritual equivalent of them then. Oh, I can see your whole life, Emily. Here in a place like this, where people can't see a mile beyond their own nose. I can see farther than that, said Emily, putting up her chin. I can see the stars. I was speaking figuratively, my dear. So was I. Oh, Miss Royal, I know life is rather cramped here in some ways, but the sky is as much mine as anybody's. I may not succeed here, but, if not, 
I wouldn't succeed in New York either. Some fountain of living water would dry up in my soul if I left the land I love. I know I'll have difficulties and discouragements here, but people have overcome far worse. You know that story you told me about Parkman, that for years he was unable to write for more than five minutes at a time, that he took three years to write one of his books, six lines per day for three years. I shall always remember that when I get discouraged. It will help me through any number of white nights. Well, Miss Royal threw out her hands. I give up. I think you're making a terrible mistake, Emily. But if in the years to come I find out I'm wrong, I'll write and admit it. And if you find out you are wrong, write me and admit it. And you'll find me as ready to help you as ever. I won't even say I told you so. Send me any of your stories my magazine is fit for, and ask me for any advice I can give. I'm going right back to New York tomorrow. I was only going to wait till July to take you with me. Since you won't come, I'm off. I detest living in a place where all they think is that I've played my cards badly and lost the matrimonial game. Where all the young girls, except you, are so abominably respectful to me. And where the old folks keep telling me I look so much like my mother. Mother was ugly. Let's say goodbye and make it snappy. Miss Royal, said Emily, earnestly. You do believe, don't you, that I appreciate your kindness. Your sympathy and your encouragement have meant more to me, always will mean more to me, than you can ever dream. Miss Royal whisked her handkerchief furtively across her eyes and made an elaborate curtsy. Thank you for them kind words, lady, she said solemnly. Then she laughed a little, put her hands on Emily's shoulders and kissed her cheek. All the good wishes ever thought, said, or written, go with you she said, and I think it would be nice if any place could ever mean to me what it is evident New Moon means to you. At three o'clock that night, a wakeful but contented Emily remembered that she had never seen Chu Chin.